Good morning, everybody. I'm uh, excited to get in the Word with you. Uh, yeah, open up to Ruth chapter 1. As you are turning there, uh, I wanted to do two quick uh, book recommendations when it comes to studying Ruth, the Old Testament. We have uh, them in our bookstore. The first one, look at the size of this thing. This is the best kind of book, right? So this is <laughs> Loving the Old Testament by Alec Mateer. Um, it's so short and sweet. I read this in preparation for last week. It's such a good overview of like the big important concepts to understand. And then he even goes through like every book of the Bible in like a few sentences and just helps you, or the Old Testament helps you kind of wrap your head around that. So highly recommend this. And then as we are in the book of Ruth, and I, I've had so many recommendations come my way, like, oh, you have to read this book on Ruth. You have to read this book. It's such a beloved story. But one of uh, my favorite authors and pastors, I just want to recommend this book. We have a few of these as well. It's called A Sweet and Bitter Providence by John Piper. And it's, uh, it's essentially like a very uh, accessible commentary on the book of Ruth. This will just be really helpful as well. So we have both of these on our book uh, table store thing that we have over there. Uh, also like a ridiculous sale going on on that little table. Some of that stuff's worth a lot and it's like dollars. Even we have a free section now, so just check it out. Um, okay, so we're going to be in the book of Ruth. Uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to be in Ruth chapter one. Uh, but the way, you know, like when, when you study a story in scripture, it's not as simple as like a verse by verse, you know, okay, here's this truth from this verse. It's important to kind of get enough of the story in your head, in your heart. And that's kind of the way that the Holy Spirit uses narrative, uses story. So we're going to read the whole chapter just to kind of like marinate, get the, the story in us. And then the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at different aspects of uh, Ruth chapter one. This morning, uh, the title of this sermon is Bitter into Sweet. The next week, we're going to be learning about the biblical concept of lament, uh, how we should handle our emotions with the Lord. And then the third one, we're going to have Christian Simons here from Reality Stockton, and he's going to be getting into that famous passage, your God is my God, your people, my people, and he's going to teach us that. So this morning, uh, let's, let's read together the, the first chapter of Ruth, 22 verses. If you're like me and you're an auditory learner, I'd even encourage you to just like close your eyes and just listen to the story. If you're visual, this, this will be helpful. So uh, let's read this and pray and get into the book of Ruth together. You guys ready? Word of God. So good. Story time is raining outside. This is, this is the best. Okay. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country, to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word that is alive and active. And, and Lord, would we receive it this morning not just as uh, the thoughts of any mere person, but as truth, as bread from the, the hand of God that, that our souls need to be nourished on. Would we receive your word this morning? Even the bitter taste of it that we, that we read of as, as from you and for our good. Lord, even as we read and meditate on bitter things, such as a famine and leaving home and death, would, would, would this, your word, prepare us, your people, uh, for life in this world, for, for our own bitterness? And would you shape our minds so that we would know how to trust you Trust your hand, trust your goodness, trust that you are working all things out according to your good purposes for your children and for your glory. Would you prepare us this morning for what you have for each of us? For, for others who have tasted bitterness, Lord, would, you, would, your, word, would your, your word restore and heal, be like a balm? Would, would any, any ways in which our minds have been improperly thinking uh, would, would you reform and reshape us to think rightly about you and the bitterness that we have tasted? And above all, Holy Spirit, would you show us Jesus this morning? 
Thank you that we learn that your word reveals Christ and your mercy and your loving kindness to us, that you never left us and will never leave us. You are with us even in bitter seasons and you are working in ways we could never imagine and the day is coming when we will see you face to face and there will be no more bitterness. We thank you for that, Lord. Would you now uh, allow all of us, myself included, just to humble ourselves at your word. Would you speak and teach and lead us, your sheep, your people, your flock this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus says to us, his people, in this world, you will have trouble. Uh, and as, as I just prayed, some of us this morning have faced indescribable pain and loss and hardship. Some of us right now are in the midst of this kind of pain. And some of us uh, who are maybe younger or have just been uh, blessed by God have yet to taste this kind of bitterness that we read of in Ruth chapter 1. But the words of Jesus... In this world, you will have trouble are are a sobering warning to myself and others that we will all taste the bitterness of life and trouble. And as we begin this beloved story, uh, the book of Ruth, um, we read of very bitter trouble. Naomi loses her home, her husband, and her children, all within the span of a few verses. And if, you, if you're familiar with this story, you know, thankfully, it doesn't end in a place of bitter trouble. Um, if, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know Jesus finished that sentence, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We know that the story of God does not end bitterly. If, if by the time we finish this sermon, the time we finish the book of Ruth, by the time we look back on our own lives, we will see that the same God who brings bitter experiences into our lives will make them all sweet one day. That the same God who allows this suffering redeems this suffering. And the same God who allows this suffering will one day end suffering altogether. And the same God who we often have difficult trusting in the midst of our suffering the same God who we, we are often tempted to be bitter against, as Naomi is here, is the same God who suffered for us on the cross and suffers with us even now through his son, Jesus. We know this will not end bitter, but, but, but we all will taste bitterness before that sweet ending comes. Um, and... and we need to know how to think properly and feel properly and trust properly in seasons of bitterness. And, and so that's, that's, that's the sermon this morning. That's the word of God has for us. And, and to get started, um, I want us to remember, as we get a little bit of context here, uh, remember one of the, the, the truths we learned about the Old Testament last week, that it all points to Jesus. And, and even, hear this, this is... The, the Holy Spirit is such a good author. Even the details, seeming insignificant details in this story are all like, like hidden, hidden pointers to Jesus, okay? So we're gonna go through just a, a, a brief, I want us to look at a few names and places and then I want us to see that Christ is hiding 
even in, in the little details of the context of this story. Okay, so, so I want to look again at verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read those, and then we're going to notice a few things. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem, that sounds familiar, in Judah, that sounds like significant, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the one was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, uh, and let's, let's stop there. So I want us to notice a few things. So first of all, a man of Bethlehem. Uh, the, the word Bethlehem means house of bread, okay? That's, that's what Bethlehem, the name means, because it, it's situated in a, in a, in a place where uh, the crops just grow well, the weather grows well. It's similar to Southern California. If it gets enough water, things can grow really well. It's called the house of bread. Now, now let me ask you, do, do you think it would be unwise to leave a place called the house of bread in time of a famine. And, and, and it's worth saying, probably, as we're going to see by the end of this story. And, but also, think, think even bigger picture about Bethlehem. Do you remember what else Bethlehem is significant for? Well, first of all, it's where King David will be born. And second of all, it's where Jesus will be born. And so even in this, we see, okay, this is, this is more significant than this little story. And then we, we, we read Bethlehem in Judah. Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and remember, that, that means that was the 12 sons of the man Israel. And at the end of his life, he, he brought his sons before him and he blessed each of his sons and, and he prophesied over them. And at the end of his life, when he got to Judah, he prophesied this verse over Judah. Look at this, Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, or nations. Now, if you were here last week, remember the context? Remember what's going on here in the time of the judges where there was no king and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes? In this time, someone is from Judah, someone in the tribe of Judah, is, is one of the characters here. And, 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 and notice this. So the, the man's name is Elimelech. Now, if you knew Hebrew, you would, you would be like, oh, that Hebrew names carried with them meaning. We don't understand Hebrew. We go to dictionaries and Google and say, what does Elimelech mean? And this is what we learned. Elimelech means my God is king. Okay? In this story, in this time, in Judah and Bethlehem, what are the chances that this man is named my God is king? This is... These details are some of the things that tempt scholars to think this is too good to be true. This couldn't be history. Someone had to make this stuff up. It's too significant. To which I would say, God, who ordains and orchestrates all things, even our names and the places and times we are born, Acts 17, ordains things like this in his word. And then we read that this man takes his family in, in a famine to a country called Moab. Now, Moab... Uh, came into existence through the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters, if you remember that story. Lot sleeps with his daughters. One of the children is named Moab. And these people, uh, not even many years before this story, hired the people of Moab, hired Balaam, which was a prophet of, of, uh, of like kind of like a... He wasn't a Hebrew prophet. He was a secular prophet, if you will. He was a prophet of the nations. And they hired him to come curse the people of Israel. And so he went to try and curse them, but the Spirit of God overcame him, and he just blessed Israel. That's an amazing story in the book of Numbers. 
Uh, and Moab are the same people who seduced the people of Israel as they were coming into the promised land and led them into idolatry. These are the same people who sacrificed their babies. They, they had children who were born and then they sacrificed them to false gods. This is, this is the people of Moab. And, and so even in this context, we see people leaving the house of bread, the promised land, the place of Judah and Bethlehem, to go to Moab for help, for provision. And, and again, we, it's not explicit, but we can at least ask, is it unwise to do that? And, and, and it's at least, we can at least say probably. And then we see this, this progression. Uh, in verse 1, it says they went to sojourn there, which means, you know, uh, we're traveling. But then in verse 2, it says they remained there. And then in verse 4, it says they took wives. And then in, also in verse 4, they lived there about 10 years. And, and this, is, this is likely a picture of our own temptation to leave the people of God, to go look for provision and community elsewhere. And, you know, we've all experienced this. It starts with just a visit. And then you remain a while. And then you form these deep ties. And the next thing you know, it's been 10 years. Like, what just happened? The people, where, where have I been? This is how it happens. Now, now even in this discouraging beginning, we uh, hear this truth. Let this minister to your soul. Uh, would anyone be willing to admit they've done stuff like this in difficult seasons and famines? They've wandered from God and the provision and people of God? Yet know this. If it wasn't for the unwise decision of Elimelech, the story of Ruth never would have happened. God uses all things, even sin and foolishness, for his good purposes. God uses even our foolish decisions. And just hear this. One of the beautiful things about a sovereign God is that we can't ruin his plan for our lives. We know that verse, Jeremiah 20, 11, all oh, plans to prosper, yes, God, but then I sinned. I for sure walked out of the will of God and now I'm, my life is ruined. To which God says, read the book of Ruth and see what I can do in, in the midst of foolishness. Watch how I can work out my plans for good and my glory. And so then the, the two more names I want us to notice is this, the name Naomi, which we, we read, it probably says in your footnote in your Bible, that name means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. Yet at the end of this chapter, she says of herself, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Change my, I want the world, my identity has changed. I am a bitter woman. And the, the chap, chapter one of Ruth is really all about Naomi. She is really the central character that we're gonna learn from in this chapter. And then the last uh, bit of context I want you to see is this, in verse four, it talks about these two sons marry Moabite wives, and the second wife is Ruth. And you know what the, the name Ruth means? It means friend. It means friend. And, and what an unexpected friend from the people of Moab. I could imagine the people of Israel saying, can anything good come out of Moab? What does that sound like? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, where Jesus was raised? Oh, how God surprises us. And, and hear this, even our seemingly cursed family backgrounds and histories are used 
by God and brought into his plans. Now, that's some context. We've got some places, some characters. Uh, and now we move on to the bitter part of the story. Um, and, and I want, I'm just going to forewarn you, we read it. But we're going to like read it. We're going to think about it. We're going to ask what the rest of the scripture says about it. Uh, it's going to be bitter. This is going to taste bitter to our souls. And that's even by design. This is a bitter chapter. This is bitter. Um, and, and even by the end, I'll just let you know there will be sweetness. But, but we're going to have to walk through some bitter truth. We're going to have to think about some bitter things. We're going to have to taste a little bit of the bitterness of Naomi. And, and I'm sure for many of you, you already have bitterness in your own life and story to which you will just be able to like, yes, that is, that is how it goes. Uh, and just to sum up this chapter again, I just want us to hear the, the cry uh, that Naomi declares in verses 20 through 21. We have it on the screen. This sums up this, this story. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi says some significant stuff right there. In these two verses, she says God dealt bitterly with her, God took away from her. God has testified against her. And God has brought calamity upon her. What adds to Naomi's bitterness is not just that this is tragic, but that these tragedies passed through the hands of God. What adds to the bitterness is not just life is hard, but, but that Naomi knows these things happen because of in some way, they pass through the hands of God, and not just pass through the hands of God. She says, the hand of God has gone out against her. She says, the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Imagine, uh, imagine sitting next to a friend who said stuff like that. Just imagine, like, you know, you're a coffee what would you, how would you respond? How would you answer those accusations against the Lord? Uh, one common response probably is, don't say that, Naomi. God had nothing to do with that. That was Satan. That was because we live in a broken world. Uh, don't say that, Naomi. Uh, to which, th- those are true statements. Satan is involved and we live in a broken world. Uh, but there is more going on than just brokenness in general. Uh, Another common response, so some of you maybe are more of the compassion types, some of you are more of the truth types, maybe you're more like Job's friends. Here's another response. What did you do, Naomi? (laughs) Clearly, God is disciplining you. If you repent and get right with God, God will bless you again. That's another common response. Right? No, God doesn't have anything to do with that. Another one is, man, you better fix your life, and then maybe God will fix your life, right? Um, and it's worth saying this. Both of these responses are at best, at least incomplete. There may be some truth that, that the devil was involved. There may be truth that human beings sinned against you or that your own sin brought this about. There, there may be truth in the fact that you were acting in sin, And God's hand is disciplining you. There may be truth in these things. 
we don't necessarily see that in the story of Ruth. Um, and, and so these are incomplete answers at best. And, and let me just say that the rest of Scripture shows us that Naomi gets it closer to the mark than either of those two responses. Um, I won't read all of the scriptures. I want to just read a few that testify to this truth um, that, that maybe the hand of the Lord went out against Naomi. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3, we'll read these two verses. This, this is bitter. This is bitter truth. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? This is written by Jeremiah the prophet who was in exile mourning the fact that they were removed from their homes because they rebelled against God and now this disaster has come to pass because of the Lord. And then we all know the story of the man Job who may be the only man in the Bible who suffered less than Naomi. Think about that. Naomi lost a spouse and children and Job said this immediately after his children and his possessions were taken from him. Job 121 and And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in case we think Job is just off his rocker, the next verse says this. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, this, is, this is kind of difficult because they're like, well, Job did charge God with wrong. But what Job is pointing out is God is God and has the right to give and to take away. That there's no divine entitlement here that because we are human, we are entitled to something from God. That God is God and he has every right. He brought us in with nothing. He can take us out with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then, and then Job's own wife is thinking, Job? I don't like your theology, it's wrong. Look what she she says in Job chapter two. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so we get this this taste that Naomi and Job experienced, that, that God is somehow over all of this. Uh, that bitterness, I want us to see this now, this bitterness in a few places. It starts in verse one, as it says, in the, in the days, I think we have this verse here, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. We could just stop right there. The bitterness begins with the famine, in the house of bread, nonetheless, uh, which, which leads to a whole family leaving their home and their relationships in the, in the promised land of God. And uh, I just want to say this. I know many of us here have experienced the bitterness of leaving home, of being forced to leave our homes, of seeking maybe a job elsewhere and this bitter experience of having to leave. Honestly, I was reflecting on this. Some of the most bitter experiences of my own childhood, you know, it's, it's a child's bitterness, but were when my best friends had to move away because it was tough for their family uh, to, to live and support their families here, and they, they moved away. Even... Uh, one of my best friends in high school, his dad moved his entire family across the country, and he, he, my friend was told it's because of a job, and it was only to find out when they moved across the country that his dad was having an affair and wanted to live closer to the person he was having an affair with, and so he just moved this whole family across the country, and I just remember being bitter, like, like this is wrong. It's bitter often to leave our homes. And, and again, we may say, okay, a famine, 
yeah, but that's just bad luck, right? That's just the weather. The weather does what the weather does. To which I want us to think rightly, what does the Bible say about the weather? What does it say? Does it say that our God created things, like if you maybe heard the metaphor, uh, uh, like, a, like a clockmaker, and he, he made this intricate system, and he got it in motion, and then he stepped away, and, and now it runs itself? That's, that sounds very, almost a secular view of how God would create things. And I, and I want us to know, it's not how the Bible talks about even famines. In fact, in verse 6, it explicitly says this, look at this. This is about Naomi. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Within this own chapter, we see that God gets credit for rain and bringing food and and even a famine. And Naomi may have known the verse in Leviticus 26 where God explicitly says this. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And then we know further on when the people of Israel rebelled against God, Elijah prayed and God stopped. He intervened in the weather system and there was not rain. Uh, Even in our day and age, we can tend to think, is God really involved in the rain that is outside? Um, Think with me about these two passages. In Colossians chapter 1, it's talking about Jesus. Sorry, I'm moving quick. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. Hear this about the weather of Southern California. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, again about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The universe is upheld by Jesus' word, who created all things. In Psalm 147, verse 8, we read that God gives rain and takes it away. In Proverbs 16, we read that God's sovereignty extends to every roll of the dice. In Daniel chapter 2, we read that God is over the rising and falling of the nations of the world. God is sovereign even over little things like famines and harvest. Uh, now, if we, if we start thinking about that, um, that has obvious implications, it's even for our own community who has experienced uh, severe weather and even natural disaster that has taken lives. Listen to this quote. This is uh, written by someone who's criticizing the idea that God is somehow in weather. This is in the Wall Street Journal. Listen to what it says. When confronted by the sheer, savage immensity of worldly suffering, when we see the entire literal rim of the Indian Ocean strewn with the tens of thousands of corpses, a third of them children, no Christian is licensed to utter odious banalities about God's inscrutable counsels or blasphemous suggestions that all this mysteriously serves God's good ends. That's makes perfect sense. That's a perfectly natural response. It certainly is a natural response. And I want us to think uh, biblically of another famine. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Young Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was placed unjustly into prison. And God called him out of that prison to interpret one of Pharaoh's dreams that a famine would come and swallow up all the food. 
But that before that, there would be three good years, three and a half good years, and so they should save the food to survive the famine. Now, now Psalm 105 says this of God. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them. I just want to say this. Though God sends famines, he also sends saviors. And because God is over the famine, he is able to use the famine. And because God is over all creation and the stars and the universe and every drop of rain, every sparrow in the forest, not one molecule can stray from his rule and reign. And no disaster comes as a surprise to him. And no storm can stop his plans or his purposes. So that even in the bitterness of famines and floods, we see that God is at work because he is able to use all things. And hear this, because God is over the famine, he is also over the harvest, as we read in verse 6. And, and, and notice this, notice this, this is such a beautiful, subtle bit of hope, the, the way this chapter ends. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and, the, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, Look at this last sentence. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. We see this begins with a famine. But even before this bitter chapter is over, we see God bringing about a harvest, bringing about hope, which we will learn is significant for the outworking of this story. And while it is a bitter truth, and we, we, don't, we don't know We are not God. His ways aren't our ways. We do not see all of the ways he's using every such thing. We we, we cannot claim to be God and to know why he's allowing every such thing. We can know he is over these things and we can trust him to accomplish his good purposes in both famines and in harvests. And and yet, that's just the beginning of the bitterness of this chapter. Uh, Let's read again verses 3 through 5. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and was left, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chulion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Um, Before we think about the obvious bitterness, I don't want us to overlook that for 10 years, for 10 years, uh, there were two weddings and there were no children. Just think about that. For 10 years, there were two weddings, and there were no children. And, and even before they went home, we see, we see that, that God did not provide, that for 10 years went by, there were no children, no grandchildren. And this is actually a theme in the book of Ruth, this theme of barrenness, this theme of emptiness, this theme of bitterness. This is how the story begins, with emptiness and bitterness. There were no children. And, and, and so the bitter side of the truth is this, that God is sovereign over barrenness and childbirth. The beautiful truth, as we see time and time again throughout the Bible, is the way God uses this to bring about children in specific ways and specific times to show his grace and his mercy. But it begins bitter. Naomi went 10 years with no children born to her. And when she lost her husband and her sons, there was no hope for her. There was no heir 
to her family name. As she even said, There's, I'm too old for children. I'm too old for sons. There's, I am as good as dead, is what Naomi's saying. Our family name is as good as dead. That's a bitter, bitter uh, part of Naomi's story. But we know this isn't the end of her story. We know God is able to provide children. And, and I want to say this. Naomi didn't know. She went for 10 plus years and didn't know that a grandchild was coming to her. And, and I know there are many here who are longing for something. Children, spouse, maybe another job. And like Naomi, there may be no apparent like happy ending for you. And we have to remember that the point of Ruth is not the baby that's born to her. The point of Ruth is not a family got to end with a baby happily ever after. That is a beautiful gift. It is a joy God provides. But it's a temporary joy. Because remember, if you are a son and daughter of God, your ultimate hope is not that God would, would give you some other thing. Your ultimate hope is Jesus. That I, I saw, I read this, I'm so lame to quote Twitter, and I don't remember who it was, but someone said on Twitter this week, anything you rely on other than Jesus will shift. Anything that you rely on other than Jesus will shift. Naomi saw that with her own family as it was taken from her. And our ultimate hope is not that one day we may get a child or we may get a spouse, though God is sovereign and able to give us those gifts. Our ultimate hope is a new earth with a new family, the people of God, looking at Jesus face to face. But then there's the, there is the ultimate bitterness in this text, that Naomi loses her husband and her sons. And uh, Naomi testifies, the Lord, the Lord took these things, these, my husband and sons, away from me. And that is, a, that is about as bad as it gets in this life, to lose your spouse and your children. And um, it's worth saying that in these moments of loss, in bitterness, um, we don't just need truth for our head, as important as that is. Sometimes we just need to weep and to let others weep with us. And that's what next week is all about. It's about the biblical concept of lament, how to rightly take our loss to the Lord, how to rightly speak and think and process those things. Uh, remember the story when Jesus' good friend Lazarus was sick and he died. And Jesus goes to visit them and Lazarus had two sisters who were close with Jesus. There was Martha and there was Mary. Um, when Jesus gets to Mary, all it says is he weeps. He simply weeps with her. She needed someone to weep with. Uh, but also, he spoke to Martha. And to Martha, he gives us one of the most fleshed out uh, te teachings on the resurrection, that this isn't the end. And, and so it's worth saying, some of us are more like Mary and, and just need, need this thing for our emotions. Some of us are more like Martha and we need to know how to process it rightly. We're all probably a combination of both and Jesus is a good pastor and friend and knows how to do what with, with us at any given time. Um, but, but this morning is a bit like Jesus' conversation with Martha as, as he speaks some truth to her. How do I think rightly through the loss of my brother? And, 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 and I want us to know this. I want us to think clearly, first of all, this. This is a bitter truth. We read it in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. 
God says this, see now that I, even I am he, there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. What God is testifying is I am God. Everything that has life was a gift from me. And everything that loses its life is when I remove its life from it. I am God. This is similar to when Job is just railing at God and God simply shows up and says, Job, I'm God. I don't do wrong. If I were to take a life, it is not evil. I do not owe my creation anything. I am God, but I am good. And remember how Jesus ends his conversation with Martha with this hopeful truth. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus teaches us that that death is a result of our sin and we will die, yet he's the resurrection and the life. And if we come to him, though we physically die, we will live with eternal life in him. And I want us to see... um, Another Old Testament story of, of the most that displays the way God takes bitter truth and, and makes it sweet. So if you, if you will, turn with me uh, to Exodus chapter 15. We're just going to read a few verses together. Exodus 15. This is uh, right after the Exodus as... God has delivered them from slavery and they're in the wilderness and, he, and they just, most of 15, they're celebrating God has saved us. They've just been rescued by God. This is a picture of us after our salvation. Things like Exodus 15, 22 happen. Let's read a few verses together. Exodus 15, 22 to 25. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea And they went into the wilderness of Shur. Pause. Sometimes even after salvation, God leads us into a wilderness. Amen? Have we not experienced that? And then it says this. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Pause again. That happens sometimes. God, you saved me. You're so good. Wait, where are we going? God, there's no water. You're not providing for me. What is happening? Are you good? How can you allow this, God? Verse 23, when they came to, what's that name? Marah. They could not drink because the water of Marah was bitter. Therefore, it was, called, it was named Marah. So even, pause with me again, what a cruel joke. God finally brings them the water, and it's bitter water, and they can't even drink it. That is what walking with God feels and tastes like sometimes. God, you saved me. You are so good. Why are we in this wilderness? Why are you not providing? You finally provide, and now it's this bitter water? Are you good? Are you God? And so verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Verse 25, and he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Therefore, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Uh, And I just want us to think about this. There was a log there. Another word for that is tree. It was just a tree laying there next to this bitter water. And God said, throw this tree into the water, and it will become sweet. 
Do you remember a story about another tree? The cross, that bitter piece of wood that our own Jesus hung upon. And, and remember, the most bitter truth in the Bible is that we have all sinned against God. All of us. And we all deserve death and the wrath of God for our sin. And we struggle with this divine entitlement. God, how could you do this and this and this to me? To which God says, if you want justice, I could punish you forever. And yet, Jesus faced the most bitter experience on the cross that everything bitter in our lives will be turned to sweet. That our sin will be forgiven. That death has lost its sting. And everything in your life, every bitter thing will be used by God and it will be sweet one day. We can know that because of the cross of Jesus that was thrown into that bitter water, the wrath of God, so that we could taste sweetness for eternity. Look again at Lamentations chapter three. This is what it says of our God. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And I love that because it's saying, even though he afflicts, for his kids, it's not from his heart. It's not, I'm making you taste this bitterness. It's hang on, son and daughter, and watch how I use this for your good. And I know there are some hearing me right now, and you just feel like Naomi. You're like, I know God's sovereign, and he's bad. I hate it, and I'm bitter at him. Why would he allow this? And I simply ask you to look to Jesus, to the cross, to his love for you, and his patience with you, and his care for you, and to know that even in your suffering, he is with you, and that he took your ultimate suffering from you and purchased you new eternal life with no more suffering, that though we will walk in wildernesses and though there will be bitter experiences in our life, we can trust that he is good and sovereign and will use these things. And we can know that because of the cross, the most bitter experience to the most innocent person who has ever lived and how God redeemed it for our salvation. So Jesus, I just want to ask that, that we would trust you that in the bitter taste of life and sin and sorrow and suffering, we would know, we would know that you are good and you are at work. Thank you that, that Ruth does not end at chapter one and I thank you that our stories do not end in just bitterness, but it ends with Jesus who rose from the dead, who will make all things new for us. Jesus, we thank you for your word as a church. Thank you for your words. These, are, these thoughts are not our thoughts and these ways are not our ways. If we were you, we, we would not have done things like this, but we are not. You are God and so we trust you. We thank you for your goodness and your love and your mercy and your kindness and compassion, even in bitterness. And Lord, for those questions, why God and what are you doing? 
Lord, first, would we be honest, as we're going to learn about next week, would we take those to you? Would we not go looking for answers somewhere else in some other book, but would we take them to you? And, and even if you never tell us exactly what you're doing, would we trust you because of the cross that you are good and you are at work and you will bring an end to our suffering? Lord, even now as your word just sinks in, I pray against the enemy who wants to steal it away, our own thoughts and minds and concerns that would choke it out. Lord, if any of us believe in your word but have some rocks, it goes down quick, but then when, when a trial comes, it's shallow. Remove those rocks. Get the roots down deep so that we would trust your goodness in the bitterness that is to come in our stories. When that you are good and that this bitter taste will not be forever. Lord, we worship you, Lord. You are worthy. You are so worthy. Church, I want to close uh, and just encourage you that if you've trusted in Jesus to come take communion this morning, um, and, and a pastor I was reading said this week that every time he comes to the cup, every time he, he tastes that juice, he just tries to savor the sweetness. Like, I just want to think about this. I want to find the sweet in my taste buds. And I want to remember that the cup Jesus drank was a bitter cup, far more bitter than any bitterness any of us will ever taste. But I get to taste the sweetness. I get to taste the sweetness of this cup, forgiveness and new life, eternal life, fellowship with God, these promises in his word that are true and yes and amen because of what Christ accomplished on the cross for me. So come and take this. Know that he was broken, that he poured out his blood, but now we receive sweetness from our Jesus. Amen.